And actually the volcano is like, it's the manifestation of the living planet. It's the pulse. It's the heartbeat. Hello and welcome to Mostly Grateful, a podcast where we talk about gratitude, but sometimes with a little bit of a bad attitude. I'm Joel Zuckerman. I want to shout out to my podcast producer and originator, Noah Lusky. I've got the easy part. I talk to my friends. I'm naturally inquisitive and the conversation generally flows, but it's Noah who puts it all together and makes this into a podcast. So our thanks to him. My guest today is one of the freest of free spirits I've ever had the pleasure to know. His name is Brad Lewis. And most kids, 10-year-old boys, they grow up wanting to be ballplayers or doctors or architects or firemen or cops. Brad Lewis wanted to be a volcano photographer. And by golly, did he ever become one. So I want you to pause the podcast before you listen to my conversation with Brad and go to his website, Volcano Man. Dot com, and you will absolutely marvel at the incredible, stunning imagery that he has taken over the decades of volcanoes, mostly in Hawaii. He is quite an unusual fellow. So I look forward to talking to Brad Lewis, the Volcano Man. Brad Lewis, hello. Thanks for joining me on Mostly Grateful. Hello, Joel. Thank you for having me. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. There's, you're, such a, you're such a unique person. You're such an iconoclast and a counterculture cat. I cannot wait to uh, dive into your life and times and how you ended up, where you ended up, and the things you do. So first, I want to say we're kindred spirits. And it's not just because we like to ski, but we both have cool named websites, although your cool named website is 20 times cooler than mine. My website, to, my website to sell all my books for all these years was vagabondgolfer.com, which explains traveling the world to play golf, but it has nothing on Volcano Man. Well, it's How been a good one. It's been a really good one and it served me well and it's what I've been doing for the last 35 years. And I feel very grateful for that. Did someone call you that? How did you come up with the idea for a website called Volcano Man, even though you are in fact, as we'll now discuss, the Volcano Man? It was actually David Munch, world famous photographer. And he asked me once if, if he could use some of my volcano photos for a book he was doing, a coffee table book, which floored me because David Munch never uses any photos but his own. He was doing a book on Hawaii, wanted some volcano photos. And then he said, well, you are the volcano man. And if you don't have that website, you need to get it right now. At the time, my website was Lava Art, L-A-V-A-R-T, which nobody really got. Like, you know, the play on words, lava yeah. art. And I've, I've still got it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I get, I get it because... My wife, Elaine, it's the same thing, love, love art. It does not roll off the tongue. No. My name is Joel. My wife's name is Elaine. So I used to have a company called Jolaine. It's J-O-E-L-A-I-N-E. It's the exact same concept. But uh, just like love art, 
it didn't really work. Volcano Man, on the other hand, is uh, <laughs> could be a superhero, really. Well, you know, and and it's it's resonated with us, Joel. I ever since I met you, I hear Volcano Man being called across the valley before I even see you. So I I like that. I can't be the only person that calls you Volcano Man. <laughs> Don't, don't tell me I'm the only person who refers to you as the VM. <laughs> well, I like I like it when when I hear your voice because that means we'll probably get a, a ski run in or two. <laughs> so let's talk about how this career evolved. So it's interesting. Everyone can take a photo with a camera or these days now with iPhones, but you took it to a completely other level. And by the way, before you we start talking about how you got your background in photography. I have to say that following you on social media, some of the shots that you take with your iPhone are incredible. A lot of people might think photographers, well, they have, you know, $10,000 worth of incredible equipment. I could take pictures like that if I had that type of equipment, but you're doing the same thing with a phone. That's correct. I almost everything I post is taken with my iPhone. Lately, the only thing Taken with my expensive Nikon gear would be the wild horses and the bears, moose, wolves, the, the wildlife in Wyoming. The iPhone's always in my pocket. I've always got it. And, you know, I don't even have a good iPhone, but you wouldn't really be able to tell what's what. Technology is at such an amazing level these days that we have these amazing cameras right inside our pockets. Let's start at the beginning. You are a Utah native. And I don't know, I, I'm sure you've had jobs. I don't think you've ever had regular jobs. I know you had guiding jobs and outdoor jobs and adventure jobs when you were young, but how long have you been making a living as a photographer? And where the hell did you learn to take photos like you do? It started when I was five years old and got a brownie camera. It was under the Christmas tree, and I was just fascinated by photography. I always had a camera, which is something that I always was attracted to. Throughout my boyhood, I would always have a camera. I loved making prints and giving them to my friends of adventures we would do, skiing, climbing as kids. In a way, when I'm, when I'm doing photography, even as a young um, individual, it, it kept me present. Like, I'd see something, and I just... I love that sense of being present with it while trying to capture the essence. You know, a camera was always part of my world ever since I was a little kid. You're Salt Lake area native. I grew up at the base of Mill Creek Canyon, a wonderful place as a child. I was actually one, one house away from Mill Creek itself. So as a little kid, I played a lot in the water and just, you know, nature was part of my world and my and sanctuary. Part of your world and remains. So you're so immersed in nature. And very and much so. In, and I want to get into the talking about how you became a volcano photographer. But first, I want to mention the fact that you live, we can't say you live off the grid because you're close. You're close to the, you're close to the grid. You live a unique lifestyle. Brad in winter has to take a snowmobile from his cabin because he lives in deep snow. And so where you live in the neighborhood called Brighton Estates, which is above Park City, you take a snowmobile from your home to access your car to get to town to do errands. Is that correct? That is correct. Yes, I, I, I take a snowmobile 
sometimes when it's too snowy and my snowmobile is buried, I'll have to ski out. Unfortunately, that hasn't been the case this year. So I'm waiting for those big dumps to come. Right. I remember you telling me and showing me a photo once that you had to crawl out of your house from the second floor because the whole, that's the first floor, the door, the door to your cabin was buried. You had to go out the second floor window. Completely buried. Yeah. The door, the, the eight, eight and a half foot door was completely buried. And I actually had to go out. It's, it's my, my fourth floor bathroom window. And I had to climb in and out of there for almost a month. I would dig my door out and then it would just blow in and snow in. And so I just figured that, you know, why, why go the path of resistance when you can just make it easy? I'm about a minute away on a snowmobile to where I jump on the, the ski run at Deer Valley. So I never drive to go skiing. I just, I just, uh, spend a, a moment or two on a snowmobile and then click in and there I am, I'm skiing. So you have to do onto a snowmobile to get to your car, et cetera, et cetera. But you love, you love to live up there. Tell me why the burden or the difficulty is mitigated by the joy you find in the neighborhood where you live. I've never seen it as a burden. I see it more as a privilege to do that. I've got water there. I, I've got a thousand foot deep well. I've got water. I've got electricity. To me, it's like downtown because for so many years of my life, I had no water and electricity. I'm talking for until I was probably 35. I don't know. You know, I would carry water. I had solar in Hawaii, but yeah, I do have to snowmobile all my supplies in. I do get stocked up really good in the fall. So, you know, I've got a huge pantry and stuff. I don't have to leave very much. A lot of winters when skiing's good, I will literally leave three times all winter. It's not extra work. I don't really shovel anything because... I just let it build up. I will shovel my decks, but I don't have a driveway to shovel because it's under 10 feet of snow. And I just keep my snowmobiles and my skis afloat and I'm good to go. So the way I see it is actually an easier lifestyle than if I lived in the city and had to deal with snowy, icy roads or shoveling my driveway or the whole hassle of dealing with people in snow. So. To me, it's a, an extremely easy lifestyle and it's one full of joy and beauty. Just looking out my windows and with big storms and the skiing right outside my door. I love to be on skis all winter. And so I've never seen it as a burden, but because people do, it keeps the riffraff out, which is perfect. You have plenty of like-minded people. There's more and more. Now, when I was a little boy in Brighton Estates, because I've been there since I was seven years old, my mom bought a lot and they threw in the sales cabin. So I was a little kid up there. There used to actually be more people back then, especially during the summer. Right now, there is such a good group of people. They're between 25 and 32 for the most part. They're hardy. They're kind. They're fun hogs. They're all skiers or they're boarders. All, they're all self-sufficient too. They're self-sufficient. They've been brought up by parents taught them how to do stuff and take care of themselves. And, and it's just, it's a total tribe of like-minded people. I forget that I'm like twice as old as all these people because we just do all this fun stuff together, though I do let them break trail more often than I used to. I, I will, uh, you know, let that happen, but it's just a wonderful group of people. I'm just stoked, uh, to be around so many high quality people. And the fact of the matter is when the snow is right, you are 
skiing at Deer Valley in the morning, first tracks, first chair, and then you take a rest and then you take a siesta at some point, And then in the afternoon, you go out on your back country. Yeah. Yeah. The AT gear and get after it in the, in the back country. It's far enough away that we just don't see many people that, that aren't from Brighton Estates. We do access a lot of that area with snow machines. The back country skiing is off the charts. Talking about being self-sufficient and being able to handle your own business, as you and I have discussed in the past, you need to know what you're doing up there in terms of snow safety. So by all means, that's, that's number one. And everybody there takes it extremely serious. Everybody's got all the proper gear and you know, when conditions are sketchy, people stay home. They don't take chances. And right. that's definitely an important thing is the safety. We can spend all day talking about your various recreational hijinks, but I think we want to talk about how on earth you became a volcano photographer. You basically bounce, well, you bounce all over, but your three main points on the compass are Utah, Alaska, and Hawaii. Correct. When I first left Salt Lake, it was, I was 19 years old and I went to Alaska. I just had to go to Alaska. I had to be in the last frontier. I had to experience that. That's actually when everything just like opened up for me. It was amazing. I was in Alaska. I bought a piece of land, like within a few weeks of when I went up there, it took me a summer to pay it off, but I had a place to call home. And, and so I, I pretty much thought I'd be in Alaska forever. And then an opportunity came up where I, I actually was just going to go visit a friend on Maui. This is in 1982. And I was going to do a two week vacation on Maui. And I got to Maui and like in three days, I was thinking, hmm, I could be naked on a beach instead of slipping on the ice on the way to the outhouse. I ended up staying on Maui. And then like one month later, an eruption happened on the big island, January of 1983. I went over and I saw that lava and I just thought, you know what? I, I think I need to be a volcano photographer. There's liquid light flying through the air. And there was like no one else photographing it. There was one other person who was taking it seriously. And, and I just thought I might give it a go just doing this. It was fascinating for me. For instance, the first photo I had published, it was a double page in life magazine because see, I already contacted life before I even went to Hawaii, just as a like, oh, if ever I do have stuff, I want to know who to contact. That was the first published photo and my phone rang for a week with agents all over the world who wanted to sign me up. And so like all of a sudden I had 10 agents all over the world. So it jump started my career. I jumped 10 years in one week as far as how long it would take to get a career to that position. So that's where it really took off. So, and, and it was feeling comfortable and not afraid of it because my intuition, if it was going to be dangerous then I would have a feeling like, well, don't get any closer to this, you know? You said something that I need clarification on. You said, I think I'm going to become a volcano photographer. So at this point, were you already, if, I know you were a photographer as a, as a avocation, but were you making a living at that point as a photographer, as your vocation? Not at all. I was being an archaeologist in Alaska. I was working for the Bureau of Indian Affairs as an archaeologist and surveyor. Photography was a very important of everything I did. I did some geology things, anthropology, geology, 
archaeology. Photography was always an element of that. I was traveling all over the world, taking pictures that I thought were quite stunning. I gave slideshows every time I came back to Utah. My friends loved it. And I always had in my mind, I wonder if I could make it as a photographer. But it wasn't until I experienced the lava and saw the liquid light that I just thought, I'm going to give this a go. And I, I had already formed a, a bit of a business. I called it Amjala Images. And I had sent query letters to magazines like Life Magazine, National Geographic, things like that. I, I got my toes wet. I wasn't making any money from it. It was in my mind, but once I saw the lava and how unique it was, that's when I, I really put my mind to it, thinking that this might actually work. I think it was my relationship with nature more than anything, because lava is part of nature. A volcano is a phenomena of nature, and nature is my, my friend and my sanctuary and my church. So it was an extension of this living planet we're on. And, and actually, the volcano is like, it's the manifestation of the living planet. It's the pulse. It's the heartbeat. You are a different breed of cat in many ways. But I have to say, listening to what you just had to, said a moment ago, of all the boys and all the young men in the world who have said, I'm going to be a fill-in-the-blank policeman, firefighter, veterinarian, journalist, ball player, how many have actually ever said, I'm going to be a volcano photographer? <laughs> I have to think you might be the only person in the history of the planet to Could ever be. say that thought as, hey, this is, this is be my career and god dang it you did it and you have hundreds thousands of incredible volcano images and as i said at the beginning of the uh, podcast for those listening check out volcanoman.com to see some of brad's incredible work so begs the question lava is beautiful but deadly how close to harm's way have you been in getting close i know you've been up in dollies and cranes and helicopters, but sometimes you're on the ground next to the lava. Give me a sense of one or two stories where uh, it might have gone another way and uh, we wouldn't be talking today. Fortunately, I've got this thing that I use called intuition. And that in itself <laughs> has kept me out of harm's way. For the most part, I've had a couple sketchy times. In the beginning, as I'm getting to learn what this lava stuff is all about, I did have a few experiences that, that, that were, were a bit dicey, but intuition has always been my friend as a little boy growing up, as a young climber in junior high school, as a skier in high school, dodging avalanche paths and, and, and learning and just feeling, is it safe? Is it not? So with the lava and mind you, Joe, I must say that I'm on Kilauea volcano, a shield volcano. And a shield volcano is a different animal than a explosive volcano. So Kilauea volcano is actually, it's the world's most active volcano, but in a way it's also a drive-in volcano in that it's oozing lava. And so people can get up next to lava flows way more safely than other volcanoes that, that explode and things. Already I'm feeling more comfortable with this volcano. Now there are explosive events. There are Probably the most dangerous thing for me is when the lava is flowing in the ocean, creating a big bench of land that can fall in. If I'm on that, then I'm, I'm gone. The lava flows in the ocean and yeah, hardens so, and becomes 
something you can walk on? Yeah, in 24 hours, it might form a two-acre bench of lava where it's just new lava, but it's unstable underneath. And if all that falls, it's like on ball bearings, basically. And so if that falls in the ocean, you know, then that's going to cause much damage and, and m most likely death. Things like that are what I'd have to watch out for. I'd have to watch out also for thin roof lava tubes. They'd be very dangerous. So I'd have to be very aware of the heat going what is, on. What is thin roof? You've got lava rivers that are going down the mountain and they will harden on the surface then form a solid surface, but it's still flowing underneath. So it's it's a lava tube. I got it. And that might be two inches thick. Depends on how long it's it's been flowing. So if I'm unaware and I step on that, I can fall through and into the lava. So that's not good. Things like that are what I had to learn and become aware of as I'm learning what this this thing is called an active volcano. Have you ever touched or been touched by lava? I have had hot lava bounce off of me when it's exploding. I would take my daughter to the lava flows with me. She'd be like three years old, two years old than me. And one day we were at the lava flow, it was exploding and lava was landing all around us. We were behind where it was, of course, but she was so tempted to pick up these glowing orange tears of hot lava, little bits. And I was like, don't touch it, honey, it's hot. And she couldn't help herself. And she picked one up and she started crying right away. And I put her fingers in a little bit of water. And I felt like, okay, I'm the only father on the planet today that told their child, don't touch. It's like, don't touch the stove. It's hot. And she touched the hot lava and she was crying. And I, I, I soothed her. And I just thought that was such a precious memory. But anyway, back to. Precious back memory for you anyway. Well, I mean, it. it it was like touching a hot stove. She was fine. If you touch the lava, does it cling to you? It is more like a rock or pebble. When lava is flying in the air, if it hits off of me, it'll just fall off. It doesn't stick. It's not viscous like an oil or something where it sticks. Okay. But basically, if it's flying, you don't want to be hit by lava. The times where, where lava has been landing around me are few and far between. And, and I've always got a helmet on. I've got protective clothing. Once it starts landing behind me, I, I take off. I've, I've been in the middle of photos, like 30 second exposures where an explosion will happen. Lava will start landing behind me. I leave my camera where it's at to get the shot and I'll come back when the lava has quit flying. This is, um, ocean events where there are littoral explosions where the lava is going in the ocean. That's just a phenomenon where it explodes when ocean water enters a lava tube generally. That's when it will explode with the interaction of the seawater and the hot lava. For the third time, and hopefully the last, anyone listening needs to pause and go to VolcanoMan.com. You have taken, I don't know, tens, tens of thousands of oh, volcano oh. images. Oh, I've taken, I've taken over, I've taken over a million slides, just oh. slides of the volcano, but before digital even happened. But, but one of your images, one of that, one of those images is one in a million. And it's the one where you made your bones. It's an incredible shot, right place, right time. It's one of the first things you see on the Volcano Man website. And that is the lava is suspended in the air and is unmistakably in the shape of a heart. 
It's definitely one of my favorites. This was a brand new vent. It was less than 24 hours old at the summit of Kilauea. It was a vent that I was aware of. I, I arranged to fly in on a helicopter. At that time, I was a contract photographer for Hawaii Volcanoes Observatory. This was just a, a tool I could use where I could provide them with imagery. I could have the access I needed. I was an independent photographer, but I worked in conjunction with them. So I could hire my own helicopters, go where I wanted. I flew in a few hours after I found out this brand new vent had started. By the time I landed, got my gear out, the vent, it stopped. And I'm like, oh, bummer. I spent $1,000 to fly in and I'm not even going to get a photo, but I was going to spend the night anyway. So I set my gear up. All of a sudden, the activity started coming back. It started gurgling and hissing and coughing. Then it started exploding, pulsing. It would explode like once every five seconds. I had two camera systems set up. I would just take a shot every time it exploded. This is film day. So I sent the six by seven film to New York. It took two weeks to get it back. And when I got it back, I saw the Pele's heartbeat photo on my light table and I got chicken skin and I thought this one's going to do very well. What did you call it? A Pele's heart? Pele's heartbeat. Pele is the volcano goddess. That's oh, the Hawaiian it. volcano goddess. And so I, I named that image Pele's heartbeat. The heart itself is about 30 feet across. So that, that explosion, the size of that, without a person in it, it's hard to tell the scale, but it's, exactly. it's about 30 feet across the uh, lava explosion. I've looked at that image numerous times. It's, yeah. it's such a spectacular photo. Oh my God. Brad has, as he said, million, a million plus slides. If you look at his website, you'll see hundreds of incredible images, but this one is very special. A beautiful heart of exploding lava that was caught right place, right moment, right second, right half a second yeah. in time. Yeah. And like you said, you saw it and you said, uh, uh, this one. This one's going to pay the rent for a while. Oh, yeah. <laughs> How many times has that image been sold? Any oh, idea? thousands, thousands. <laughs> when I order that, I order like prints from my galleries in Hawaii. I'd order a thousand at a time at least. Oh, my Lord. So you are a wanderer. You also, Brad is based primarily in Utah. You haven't been up, you haven't been up to Alaska in my understanding for a while. Yeah, I took the summer off because of COVID and it was very sad because I finally got my perfect slip for my sailboat. I was so stoked to spend the summer sailing and the pandemic just changed all plans. I ended up staying down in the lower 48, the mainland, and I just spent all summer in my red canoe in Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, in wilderness areas and backpacking. It was a treat to just be able to hang out down here. Europe. A unique individual. My impression is people who want to live off the grid, they tend to be, some of them anyway, I'm sure, antisocial, kind of hermits, survivalists, that type of backwoods mentality. But you are, couldn't be a nicer guy. You're very much a people person. You really have a very nice way about you. All fall, I was looking at you with his red canoe. In Wyoming, in Idaho, you're wandering with the horses, the wild horses, 
So when you leave town, you live in a tent out of your SUV, your vehicle, and in your canoe just for literally weeks at a time. Am I right? That is correct. Yeah. I love backpacking where I've got just my tent. I car camp a lot because it's so convenient in remote places. The whole canoe thing, it was just so beautiful. This red canoe and these isolated wilderness lakes. I just thought, I think I'll do a little red canoe series. And it's this, it's the perfect way to social distance. I want it to be appropriate in my activities with the pandemic and not be around people that worked quite well. I'd be out in the middle of these lakes. Of course, the composition with the red canoe and jagged peaks and beautiful clouds, it just set my soul free. I'm very fond of going to new places I've never been. So I try to keep it fresh and, and pick locations that I've never been to. So I did a lot of that this summer. At your stage, those, those places you've never been are getting further and further apart and fewer between. They are indeed. That is Whatever for sure. I'm trying to say. So I don't even, I don't even have to ask you what you're grateful for. It's uh, I think you're grateful for your life, your daughter, your photography skills, the fact that that vent started venting when you were, uh, had two cameras set up, all the opportunities that have come your way and opportunities that you've made for yourself. But the name of the podcast is mostly grateful and, uh, Politics aside, there's got to be a couple of things that stick in your craw. What are a couple of things that bother you that you wish were a little different about life? I'm not very fond of mean people. I wish sometimes that people would feel a little more gratitude for what they do have instead of focusing on what they don't have. We're so privileged, all of us, and, and we have so much to be grateful for that sometimes people with the cup half empty or the cup all the way empty. I just don't have much patience or time for that. I don't like rude people. I don't like mean people or entitled people. I like nice people. It's all about love. If you're not feeling it and not spreading it, then I just don't have much patience for that. I don't know if there's a lot of people who, that I know of that I can think of off the top of my head who get more out of life than you. And it's not because you're some Forbes 400 guy or, or CEO guy on a jet or going to con or going to Monte Carlo or living a life of great privilege in terms of uh, what you have and what you own. And uh, commercially, you live an incredible life of privilege in how you wander amongst nature's beautiful places. And you've always said to me in the past, uh, I like, well, how do you phrase it? I like places of profound beauty. Oh, yes, indeed. That's for sure. As, as far as what you just said, I feel like I'm the wealthiest person on the planet. I get, I get first chair at Deer Valley every day and, and, and groomers, not so much every day this year, but perfect corduroy and I'm flying down the mountain. I can't be more wealthy than that. Money has little to do with wealth, in my opinion. I just feel utterly grateful for every day, every moment. Nature's a big part of that, being in, in beautiful places and skiing has a lot to do with it. But yeah, I just feel extraordinarily lucky and fortunate. Well, I feel fortunate to know you and I feel fortunate you took time out of your day to chat with us on the podcast. Let's hope for some bigger snow sometime soon. Hopefully late January, February, March, uh, the, the skies will open up for us because the corduroy is nice and the groomers are nice. But we would all, uh, we'd all prefer a change of pace if possible. That's for sure. Uh, hey, man, thanks a million. Thank you so much, Joel. 
Brad Lewis, the Volcano Man. <laughs>